Hey, this is Mike Bob, and I'm a guy who used to make things, and sometimes I still do. These days, I prefer making podcasts, and I have a new one called Soundtrack to My Life. On this podcast, I talk to different creative people about the music that shaped them. Sometimes the conversations are funny, and sometimes they're just kind of sweet. I love that Pina Colada song. Yeah, I do. Rihanna has had a huge impact on my songwriting. I'm diving into the ocean, finding that one fish that has the toxins, and I'm just drinking those toxins all day. Maybe they're saying, like, you should now go forth and rock. It's like a peace be with you situation. I also have a playlist called F Jams. One and two. <laughs> Just in case. We dance to a jazz version of my favorite things. Soundtrack to my life. It's available exclusive on Spotify. It's a exclusive. I'm going to try to make that word take off. It's a music plus talk show, meaning I can play songs in their entirety. So think of this as an interactive playlist with some of the coolest creative people I know. And you should know, too. Soundtrack to my life. A Spotify exclusive. Welcome back. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Bats. Back. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back, Cotter. Welcome back to the Welcome Back Cotter podcast. Welcome back to Bats Breath. It's not welcome back. It's welcome to. No, I mean, if they listen, you don't know how they're listening. They could have been listening to episode five, and this is episode, is this episode six? This is episode seven. Okay. Uh, so bad math on my part. They could just listen to six, and they're, they're, they're going right into seven. So it is welcome back. Sure. It, it's situational. So don't judge them. Don't judge yourself. Just let's flow. I'm going to assume, though, that this may be the first episode that some people are listening to because you and I have a phenomenal guest on this one. Absolutely. I'm excited for this. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I suppose people can just look in the show notes and know who it is. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to do for a podcast. Like, if this were radio you know, it'd be like, uh, after these messages, we'll find out who our secret guest is. On a podcast, I think the rules are different because, you know, we're going to stay with special guests. Mino Palouse. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I couldn't hold it anymore. You got the Palouse. So I, I don't want to, you know, I feel like it's your gift to the world. I didn't want to steal that from you. Well, let's introduce ourselves. <laughs> I'm Mike Bobbitt. Okay. And I'm Bob Wick. Yeah, this is Bat's Breath. Bob and I 
our couple of guys who kind of knew each other more or less in passing, but we found out that we both had the same love for television from the same era. And we decided it would be absolutely ridiculous to do a podcast about Voyagers, assuming that Bob and I were the only people who really remembered Voyagers. But it turns out that there is a gigantic community. (laughs) There is so many people. Yeah. Which is so, so cool because like I I thought until until last week, you were the only person I knew who also remembered the show. So discovering these people, it's so cool. Yeah. Normally the format of the show is Bob and I go through episode by episode, kind of recapping and talking about what holds up and what we really enjoyed about the episode. And then we close each episode improvising a scene based on it. But we won't today because I ended up speaking to Mino Palouse for about an hour And honestly, I'm sure if people are listening to this episode, they really just want us. I feel like we're the opening comedian before a band is about to play. And people are like, just get off the stage and stop talking about your butt. We want to listen to Bob Seger. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Which reminds me, uh, speaking of comedians, it turns out during the interview that Mino is a big fan of Mark Maron's and Mark and I are friendly. And uh, I was like, I'll just start a a group chat between the three of us and put you in touch with him. I should have let Mino know in advance that when I got Mark attached to the TV show that I had him attached to that I was trying to sell. Yeah, uh, it was Valentine's Day at the comedy store. And I was like, all right, this is going to be the time I asked Mark. I was like, hey, how you doing, Mark? And he's like, I don't know, man. What's up with women? Why do they say that they don't make a big deal out of it? I was like, okay, now's not the time to ask him. And when I finally did ask him the day that we were moving forward with producers and everything was the day that Allison and I were buying a Christmas tree. So that's how long it takes to get Mark in a good mood sometimes. So I hope that I didn't ruin Mino's opportunity to become buddies with Mark Marin by just sending a text without being able to see Mark and see what kind of mood he lowered his expectations. And if he does become friends with them, they'll have a tighter bond because he didn't go into it with any false pretenses. It's just like, oh, this is the Mark Marin. You know what? Anybody who's listened to WTF knows exactly what Mark Marin is. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was funny, too, because I was fighting the urge the entire time I was talking to Mino to slip into Marin mode and go. Uh, so what's the deal, man? You were a child star in the 80s. and You're not all screwed up. <laughs> like, what's that like? Yeah. What were they like? What are your parents like? like what did yeah. they do? <laughs> I also do want to preface this up front, too, that I did not tell Mino that we do a network clean podcast. So oh. there will be a lot of swearing during the interview because I wanted him to feel comfortable comfortable and just absolutely I, I didn't want to cut him off after the first one and go, oh, um, actually, please watch your every word. So people tune in for the real Mino. I think that's fine. I, I got to tell you, it was a great conversation. And I told oh. him at the end, I, I, it felt like therapy. Like he's just a really <laughs> solid, well-adjusted, kind, positive guy. And it really made watching this episode, it kind of made me appreciate the show on a whole new level now having had a chance to talk to him and know how much fun he had making the show that's that's really important because you hear so many horror stories of yeah not just child stars but but people in general not 
enjoying any uh, project they do and it kind of spoils the overall product or you're just like your your consumption of the product so knowing that yeah. you enjoyed it and honestly i'm not surprised because this is a really well done project and it seems like a lot of fun and from all the, the pictures i've seen because i've did a d- deep dive on the facebook page wow like yeah i, I could totally believe they had a great time and it was just a, a, probably a really great part of his life Yeah, like you and I picked up on the fact that this must have been a really positive work experience on the first five episodes of this podcast. And then when we had Ginger on from the website and the Facebook group, she confirmed what you and I had suspected. And then Mino also confirmed what you and I had assumed was the case, which really makes me happy that you and I are so insightful to human decency. (laughs) Or we just been a part of so many projects. We know we can tell we hit the bad ones from the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that, too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so this is the day the Rebs took Lincoln. Yes, it takes place in three different eras. Well, more or less the 1860s twice. We start off in 1863 and Abe Lincoln is prisoner of the Confederate Army, and then we jump back in time to a uh, questionable how legit it is, 1830s London, where we meet fictional characters. And one non-fictional, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah. And then we come back to um, 1862 to stop the kidnapping. Right. What did you think of this episode, Bob? I, I enjoyed it. It, it I'm not my favorite one, because I don't know, it just, it just kind of hummed along. Yeah. I mean, knowing history, I know there was great stakes, but I didn't feel that in the in the tone of the episode. Yeah, so I think that'd be my only critique. But it's I, I I'll say it again: this show holds up, and I've not had like a bad experience watching any of these. It just right. if I had to choose my favorite episode, I don't think this would make my top five. You texted me right beforehand and said that John Anderson, who plays <laughs> Abe Lincoln in this, has a very Milton Berle. <laughs> delivery what did you mean by that i as soon as you said that i was like wait what like i i take it back uh, when you first meet lincoln when uh, him and boggs are talking if he had a cigar just the way like his more about his mannerisms <laughs> than like anything like not his voice or you know he wasn't he wasn't doing any shtick it just the way he was i don't know like the way he moved his mouth and stuff like that just something about it <laughs> reminded me of milton burrow and I okay like, all right yeah, I want to go blue so much because I know that this episode is <laughs> going to have swearing with Mino and I just want to start making like my real sense of humor wants right. to come out right now because Milton Berle was very notorious for doing a certain thing that uh, I am censoring myself left and right here, yep. Bob. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. 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 <laughs> we'll have to hold that up to bat breath the after hours podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so John Anderson actually played Abe Lincoln a lot during his career. This was the final oh, really? time that he played him. And they talk about how he had a striking resemblance to Abe Lincoln. And it makes me wonder because Daniel Day Lewis played him so differently. If maybe Daniel Day Lewis was like, I'm not going to do what John Anderson does. You know, it's kind of like playing the Joker. You don't want to do what Jack Nicholson did. You want to right. do your own. And, you know, you don't want to do um, what Heath Ledger did. You want to do your own. And I mean, yeah. 
you can play a character in many different ways and still make them your own. Yeah. In that analogy, are you saying that Daniel Day-Lewis and Jared Leto are on par with each other? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Good. I mean, I thought we're all thinking it, but okay. Yes. This does do a thing that kind of bugs me about time travel stories where they jump to the moment right, right. before the cataclysmic thing happens where they could have jumped even earlier and kept the confederate spy jane phillips played by alexa hamilton they could have jumped back before she even had access to the white house right. but instead they decided to jump to the party where she kidnaps abe lincoln or they could have been cynical and, and jump back before her parents met and made sure they yeah. didn't eat. yeah you know <laughs> like it's the very it's very much in line with like the bill and ted gimmick or like paradox where oh hey remember to put a key in the sergeant's desk Remember to put a key yeah. to start. Oh, here's the key. Like, I I don't like that. I because it feels it feels like you're cheating. It's not it's not one of my favorite gimmicks. And honestly, it made me think, how is history getting messed up? Because history must have been correct at some point for for me now to, to, to know what's supposed to happen. Is it because they're traveling through time? It gets messed up. Or is it messed up and because they're fixing it, it gets corrected and he learns it? Like, what is, you know, this is the whole Voyager paradox, I'm thinking. Yeah, because Ginger told us last episode that we are going to meet other Voyagers. I wonder if there are bad Voyagers and good Voyagers. What if there are people going through messing up time? Purposely, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So there was a Voyager, a bad Voyager, who was like, no, let's just make sure Moses hits these weeds. Now just leave him here. <laughs> oh, the, oh, the Omni's green. I got to make it red. That, that's yeah. But then what would keep people from going back and forth? Like I'm going to hide in the water and drown this Moses baby. Wow. That's dark. <laughs> oh no. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe okay. there aren't bad voyagers. Well, but. I mean, there might be good voyagers who, when they do whatever they do, creates a butterfly effects. I was just going to say time. that. Yeah. Yeah. You read my mind. That's scary. What color am I thinking of right now? Uh, red. Oh, no. I was thinking blue. Because of my shirt. I get it. Eh, maybe because I'm sad. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any performances in this episode that really stood out to you as just really nailing it? Honestly, I did like Lincoln. I, I thought he was because he can even be Lincoln without the hat. And I think that's a test of how good Lincoln is. And I think everybody else was, you know, did a, a fine job, but nothing really stuck out. Oh, maybe the the kids, the, the Cockney kids. Um, yeah, I I was really surprised. I, I wanted to find out if the boy, Jack, if he was um, if he was really British or whatever, doing a. Oh, nope, yeah. Nope. He's just a California kid. Uh, Nikki Cat still works to this day. Uh, he looks familiar. Yeah. His biggest claim to fame was he was in the movie Boiler Room, which is like a Vin Diesel, oh, yeah. Giovanna Ribisi movie. Yeah. Love Boiler Room. Oh, OK. Yeah. He's in the Affleck in that is amazing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. What's up? Yeah, so he's in that movie and now he does a lot of one episode of television shows playing cops for the most part. That's cool. I want to see him in Boiler Room. Yeah, even as a kid, he just kind of nailed it, which I I thought was pretty cool and uh, apparently grew up like Mino, a very well-adjusted kid. Oh, good on him. Alex Hyde White, who plays Charles Dickens in this. Okay. I don't know if you know about this or not. I don't think you're as nerdy as I am. Maybe you are. Maybe I just don't know this about you, but there was a fantastic four movie made the poor one. Yeah. Yeah. 
He plays Reed Richards in that movie. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I I watched the documentary, like why didn't, or what happened to, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, wow. That's amazing. I like the name drop. So uh, I saw that fantastic four movie with the band Guar. Wow. I know. mm -hmm. Were they, they were they in uniform? Were they all dressed up? (laughs) Yeah. They, they hang out like that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) If you were Guar, I would always be Guar. Why wouldn't you not be Guar when you're Guar? Because those costumes stink. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, they get soaked. They are very yeah. smelly. Yeah, wearing wearing a full foam rubber costume while playing instruments on stage with stage lighting. I wear a suit and do very little movement doing comedy, and I do not wear that suit twice in a row. So I, I, I feel bad. Plus, for you don't have two tanks spraying different colored liquids <laughs> out true, on true. you and the audience. Well, I guess you haven't seen my comedy because I do. Uh, it's my one man show. Oh, <laughs> it's called Color Me Funny. And it it's uh, pretty intense. <laughs> it, there's a splash zone like the Evil yeah. Dead, the musical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or Gallagher, whatever, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to go highbrow and I was actually fishing, hoping that you would say, oh, did you see Evil Dead, the musical? And then point out someone that you and I both know who was in it. But you didn't do that. Oh, I know a few people from Evil Dead the Musical. Who do you know from Evil Dead the Musical? I don't know. I was hoping that you would oh. tell me. Have you seen Evil Dead? The I one have. at the Ringwald or uh, uh, that moved to the city theater? I saw it at the city theater. Oh, okay. And we both know someone who did a lot of the special effects for it. Who? Uh, Tommy that's- Leroy and, and both Hansons. Oh, I yeah, didn't. They did the see, cops. that's what I was looking for. I wanted you to like volunteer that kind of information. That's awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I love Tommy Leroy. We need to get Tommy Leroy on this podcast, too. Uh, he directed my last show that I wrote and he did all the puppets for it. And he, yeah, he, that guy is amazing. How, how he like he's one of those people who see he's like an artist. Oh, yeah. he is an artist. Yeah. But like an engineer together. It's, it's crazy. He just like looks at a table like, oh, I can make a monster out of that. And, yeah. and, and it's amazing. And people are just thrilled with his uh, with his special effects and his props. All right. Well, we have Lauren Arnett and Tommy Leroy on our wish list of <laughs> our wish list of people we're friends with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To have on the podcast. Yeah. We need to get both of them. Absolutely. I have no idea how we got on Evil Dead the no. musical. Because <laughs> we're nerds. <laughs> I'm the tangent king. Before we go back on track, because we've been doing every other week to fill my Voyager void, uh, I watched. Uh, time bandits last night and it Ooh. still holds up it holds up so well i love that movie oh, i still do i need to see if allison hasn't seen that because if she hasn't then we need to watch it on my you made me watch podcast you should oh that would be so much fun i hope she hasn't seen it that would be really fun to revisit so tight uh yeah oh good so where were we <laughs> I like this episode. I didn't love this episode, but there is definitely enough in it that I found enjoyable. Like I said, knowing now how much Mino was, I feel like in real life, he was Jeffrey. Like he's a history buff. Yeah. He really took his education seriously. And I, I think that's really admirable. Looking about at how both him and his sister turned out, both of them had their own TV series and were the star, like the star of it. And none of them went full Bonaducci. It says a lot about both them as people and, you know, who they had guiding them. So that's really, that's great. 
And I, I hope. Did you say Bonaduce because you knew about my day, or did you just pull Bonaduce? I, I just use him at like when bad style because he, like he's a bad childhood star, but he's, he never robbed a bank or anything, so that's why I went to yeah. On the day that I talked to Mino, I was supposed to do a radio thing with Danny Bonaduce, so I really? had to blow off Danny Bonaduce so I could talk to Mino on the phone. In a Sophie's Choice situation, if I had to pick between. Mino and Bonaduce. Mino wins 100% of the time. Oh, yeah. There was no question about it. 100% of the time. It was like, I either have to talk to Danny Bonaduce or I get to talk to Mino Palouse. <laughs> that's the way I put it. Yeah, that's yeah. that's accurate. I love your life. <laughs> that's the sense you get to say. In 2020, I yeah. got to say, well, I got to bump Danny Bonaduce for Mino Palouse. <laughs> Let's listen to my interview with Mino then. How about, how about oh, that? This is going to be great. Yeah, I'm excited for this. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, because uh, I loved talking to the guy. He's just such a solid, solid dude. Well, you texted me right after you're done, like, it was so good. I'm like, I'm excited. I've been waiting. I've been I've been patient. I, I'm going to listen to it the same time everybody else does. So I'm, I'm excited for this. Man, I'm so sorry. That's this. Oh no! Cool young uh, rock star that I've been making these cool music videos and stuff for, but he had to come over to get the footage because he's leaving town and da da da. And he was late, so. Oh, you have nothing to apologize for. You were doing me a huge favor, so don't well, even sweat I, I, it at I, all. You know, I love I love the notion of anyone loving Voyagers because it really is such a neat piece of history. It is, and I love yeah. anybody who's doing podcasts because podcasts are awesome. I'm a big part of my life. <laughs> Oh yeah, and, uh, oh yeah. You, I, I take it that you listen then when you're working and. Uh, yeah, yeah. I get up early. I make coffee for my wife, bring it to her in bed. So I start out with the Daily from the New York Times, right? And then I catch up with uh, Rachel Maddow and Democracy Now and get all my good, uh, you know, lefty politics in. And <laughs> and the Skullduggery is a really great one. I mean, I just this has been just such an era of needing to be involved with the news and needing to be on top of the news. Well, I didn't plan to go political, but (laughs) let me ask this, because it seems like a good in. And I was hoping that you were like-minded, but uh, isn't it weird that like you and Rick Schroeder both played like Joel Higgins' sons, and you seem to be so polar opposite? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm sending money and and making commercials for the Georgia campaign for the for the Senate race for Warnock and Ossoff, and he's fucking paying to get a murderer out of jail. I know. It you know with all the quarantine stuff, um, I, I was out in L.A., but then my dad died, so uh, my wife and I moved back to take care of my mom full time, and she's. Oh, it's it's okay. I, I'm getting to spend time with my mom, and she gets to be a full time grandma. So I think we're all loving that. I, I wish you know it was under better circumstances, but she's immune compromised with like asthma and you know all the stuff that comes into being an older person. And but you know, so my wife and I can't really get out there and be hands on. But we've been donating to every cause that we can and just, you know, trying to make a difference in the ways that we can. And it, uh, the world is just so crazy right now. Well, listen, I mean, this is I read a great book early on in COVID uh, called How Democracies Die. Mm-hmm. And 
when when you read when you read history books, things get distilled into these great big epic movements and moments. Right. Uh, when you really begin to study history, you realize that it's it's the nudging of the consequences of this and that that all add up. Yeah. And and that's how democracies die. They just kind of peter out and go quiet. And enough enough of the um, of the norms are thrown out the window. And then one day, one day the the president of of uh, it was it was the like the, the the Japanese president of was it Argentina? Oh, shit, blank. Okay. But I mean, essentially, just said, you know what? I'm tired of fighting with Congress. Mm. I dissolve Congress. Oh, I dissolve Congress. All right. So, like, as soon as you hit that marker, yes, then yeah, okay, you, you know things have gone out the window. But before that, it's it's a very interesting creep, and of course, that is the creep we've been watching. Yeah, which uh, yeah, which hopefully you know it it looks like. It is coming to an end. Fingers crossed that there won't be a civil war or anything. Uh, you know, here's here's an interesting observation. Um, I think we can assume that the beginning of the end has started for COVID with the advent of these decent vaccines. Right. But but as we know, like it's a year out before we actually have enough vaccinations and enough arms that we're breaking chains of transmission. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be summertime. You know the the giant loss of life in places like old folks' homes has been curtailed, but we all still need to just keep on being super safe. And I swear to God, driving to Home Depot yesterday, I saw twenty people without masks on. Oh yeah, I, I it's believe like, oh, it. the vaccine's here, it's over. And oh yeah, Trump Trump lost the election, it's over. Well, as we learn, no, it's not over. No, <laughs> yeah, all the conspiracy theorists that thought for sure. You know, it would miraculously go away. It's like, well, no. It turns out that COVID's real, guys. Like, you know, yeah. not that everything you can read on the internet is true or not, but is it true that you were teaching history at one point in time? Or all right, so here's something interesting. Just furthermore to that whole Rick Schroeder thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things that Hollywood, if you grow up, you know, if you grow up in a theater, I realize now. Right. If you grew up in a theater background, mm-hmm. you're probably inspired to really learn the art of theater, which includes a lot of reading and a lot of dissection of editorial intention by author, all this kind of stuff. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, when you grow up like acting on TV, <laughs> you don't get any of that. There you go. <laughs> and so. The, the the only thing I did get was I got a fucking one on one tutor all the time. Yeah, yeah. And because I was a precocious child, because I fortunately went to this great little private school that facilitated like the good education there, going with me to the set, um, and and my own just proclivity to being autodidactic and wanting to learn and knowing that was important. Yeah, I didn't I didn't grow up too vapid, right? Right. And I also recognized that at a certain point, like being a television actor, especially in the eighties, that was not, that was not a Zenith to aspire to. Yeah. And, you know, I was way more interested in rock and roll and girls and going off to college, which I did. Yeah. You know, so I, I went off and I got an education and, and thus am able now because I gave myself the building blocks of, 
of a stronger critical faculty, I have the ability to look back and see, you know, what are foibles and what are fundaments. Did Ricky Schroeder get that? I don't know. Right. That's true. Yeah. You know, or like, cause, cause you gotta be very misguided to be, and, and you know, that, that's just our, our education system in America. Yeah. It, it and it would seem to me, you know, because you did grow up in the era of the cautionary tale of, you know, your peers and stuff, your mom had to have done something incredibly right because there really aren't any, you know, scandalous tales about you or your siblings. Like, you know, it's funny because because my mom now as a parent, I look back and I see my mom was wildly permissive. Mm. Um and that could have been deleterious to my entire being, right. except that I was able to fuck up a few times early on, you know, and like hang out with the wrong people and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And my mom was really good about it. She just like sat me down and said, you know, is that the right person you want in your life? Is this the right way you want to go in your life? Do you really want to do this? And by giving it to me like that as my decision, ah. I could see the kind of error in, in my ways. Yeah. And so, yeah, like getting strung out on anything. One, I'm just not an addictive person, but, mm-hmm. but two, like I, I could, I, I was, I had the flirtations with things that people get too far into way earlier than most people. And so like got it out of my system. Yeah. So, so you said music. What was your uh, genre of choice growing up during those? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, like, okay. So, I mean, like, you know, God bless mom. She took me to the Stones concert in '79 okay. at the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, but here's here's what I mean about like a wildly permissive mom. That I loved it as a kid. Like the mom was just so cool. This is not something I would do with my kid. I would definitely take my kid to Rolling Stones concerts, and I have. Mm-hmm. But this is 1979 at the Coliseum, 100,000 people, festival seating. And I just went off. <laughs> she was sitting all the way at the back. I'm going to go up to the front, Mom. Okay. And I was little enough that I could sneak through everybody's legs. Right. I got almost to the front when all of a sudden someone grabbed me. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm caught. Uh-huh. And those hands that grabbed me picked me up put me on their shoulders. There's <laughs> Mick and the cherry picker right above me. And it was just fabulous. Right. So, um, so, you know, I mean like rock and roll, I was just so endeared to it from early on. Um, at nine years old, I went to see Rocky Horror picture show on the sunset strip mm-hmm. at the, uh, at the, at the theater that it would play there, you know, at midnight and stuff. And so I loved that musical. I knew all the lyrics I would sing them to myself every night before I went to bed. It's and such then, a great show too. Oh, incredible. And then when I was 12, there was kind of a seminal moment. I yeah. went to Perkins Palace, which is in, was in Pasadena. It was like the Legionnaires Hall or something. Okay. And a buddy of mine took me. And again, it's like I'm 12 years old. I, my, my children didn't go off to see shows at 12 years old. <laughs> Oh yeah, you know? yeah. Things were like, incredibly. We, I was going to the movies up by myself at twelve, and like you and I yeah, are the right. same age. And I think, you know, <laughs> the eighties were incredibly different than they are now. So, so my buddy takes me to the show, and these guys come out in you know 
licorice leather, big hair, mm-hmm. fucking guitar starts screaming, pink smoke. It's Motley Crue. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's the Too Fast for Love album, and I'm hooked. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like that album ran like vitamins every day. And then, you know, that opened up the genre of heavy metal to me, which seemed like a big deal. But I realized in hindsight now that went on for, you know, the better part of a year or two mm. until it burned itself out yeah. through its own stupid tropes. Um, we went off to, when I was 14, we went to Australia. Mm. And I fell in love, like one of my first big love affairs there with this beautiful half naked girl on Bondi beach. <laughs> and so of course, you know, what was the soundtrack to that whole experience it was in excess. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And she, tur- and she turned me on to her favorite new band, which was this brand new band called the violent Femmes. Yeah. So, Oh wow. That was the soundtrack to, you know, that, that long distance love affair that didn't last very long. That's so cool. That is such a neat way to discover music because it seems like you are the oldest of your siblings that you're the one bringing into the family all this cool stuff. Like you're the one discovering stuff and that's well, oh, so, yeah. So it was interesting, right? So there was there was just my sister and I and and we have different dads. So we're 6 right. years apart. Okay. So in in you know we're we're siblings, but we're also in some ways like only children, mm-hmm. because you know the experiences of our growing up were quite different. Yeah, and and mom's world. She was single mom. She, you know, like the time of life with my dad was very different than the time of life with Soleil's dad, and then the time of life after both of them was very different. Um, so all those epics definitely did not run concurrently for us. But yes, like I was bringing music home. I was turning Soleil. You know, the, our, Soleil and I had one huge point of connection musically, which of course was Greece. <laughs> <laughs> because cause what mom would do when Greece came out, right? This is the days when it's in the movies theaters. There's no VHS to bring it home with. Mm-hmm. So she would pack all the kids. And this is... Like Soleil's got to be two years old, right? Yeah. And and then it's like the kids that I'm doing Bad News Bears with and some other friends. She pack us into her big pickup truck. That means we're just all in the back of the pickup truck because there was a camper on it. Yeah. And she'd take us to Hollywood Boulevard in the morning and we'd go to the little theater where it was playing and she'd get us all in and then she'd just pick us up that night. Wow. <laughs> we, would, we would just watch it over and over again. Oh, Man, you and I got to grow up during a really cool era. <laughs> you know, there was something to be said for being a latchkey kid, right? Now, now check out this segue. I'm gonna almost feel like a, a real journalist. Um, so, your photography. First of all, your portraits are stunning. Like you managed to capture. It feels like these really candid moments right before, like another photographer would take the picture. And it, like, looking at your website, I just, I love the rawness and the honesty that you feel. You end up uh, photographing a lot of actors and musicians. Do you have a, a preference of one over another? And, and is one easier to shoot than another, you find? Or is it just pretty oh, much the no, person? So- 
so here, here's something interesting. I give you an even deeper insight into that. And that is that, um, so where that, where that comes from, that thing of like trying not to make a posed picture, mm-hmm. but a, a picture that shows what it's like to connect with this person. Yeah. I mean, that's informed by one, my more literary interest in doing the storytelling. Yeah. But it, it's also informed by the fact that you know, when I go after the human connection, because I'm taking pictures all the time in my life. I'm taking pictures of my kids growing up, of the life around me. I, I'm aware that there's that Cartier Bresson ineffable moment that you just have to kind of be present for and nail. What was your first so, quote unquote real camera? Um, my first real camera was a t- this really fantastic little Olympus. Okay. I had the little sliding door. I can't remember the number of it, but I traveled mm. with that. Because remember, I'm traveling from an early age. I'm around cameras from an early age. I'm, I go every day to work where an honest day's work is make-believe yeah. in front of cameras. So like the notion that cameras are in your life or pointed at you or pointed at others is total second nature to me. Um, I, then uh, there's a point where I buy myself a Canon AE-1 mm-hmm. or another Canon A-1. And, you know, so now I've got a, an SLR camera and I'm focusing it and it's not just point and shoot. It's yeah. make decisions. Right. And, and so, so how, how I really come to like the love affair with photography is that I, I, I'm at college. I'm getting a degree in literature. I still am, you know, I have this visual acuity that accompanies all my story making and storytelling and story envisioning. So when I come back to L.A. thinking, well, I suppose I should be a filmmaker now because <laughs> that's my background, right? Like right. I, I didn't yeah. have any education in it, but I knew that you just go and do it. And I also had a, you know, had a solid base in, in what is the, the critique and theory of good storytelling. Yeah. And I found photography was like, wow, you can make a movie a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 oh, and the other thing was, of course, I, fall, I, I found a dark room, the little community dark room. You go in there, time stops, the world goes away. It is, that was my first, like, taste of narcotics was that power <laughs> of, like, go into another universe and just create yeah. and then come out at dawn. Like, I literally found this community guy and, and the night watchman, I would bring him a bucket of chicken and a case of beer <laughs> and he'd let me use the place all night long. So are you, are you still analog over digital? No, because, uh, so when we lived at the brewery, which is a big artist complex downtown, mm-hmm. um, my wife's brother, he's an engineer and he'd come and he'd help me build myself a dark room. So like the dark room was literally built to my body okay you know it was it was the perfect dark room and then a more important body arrived the body of our first daughter and i thought wow i do not want these chemicals in the same place as her ah, and i closed yeah. up the dark room and bought my first computer and Ooh. it's been a ride through digital photography and now digital cinematography ever since yeah okay and it's been wonderful because it's still visual storytelling and it just, you know, with digital, you have even more control. So, and, and I'm, right. I'm all about the entire process and the autodidactic nature of learning the entire process and shooting, you know, envisioning, shooting, finishing, delivering all of that. I do, I do the whole pipeline. And, and, and now my newest fascination 
that I've come back to now over this time of having more time at home during COVID is I'm finally getting really good at guitar. Okay, have, that's cool. I was going to ask that when we were talking about music. Yeah, it's, okay. But I, but I never got good at it because like I, there was no school that I was going to for. There was no proper place to get that education. And so mm-hmm. I just assumed that I didn't have the ear to like get it instantly. Because remember, I never studied acting either. I just went and did it. Right. And I was assuming that if you just put the guitar in my hands, I should be able to play it. Well, no, it takes a little <laughs> more, right? So I, I've always been able to play a little, but now I play a lot. And oh, like every night awesome. I come down to my studio and I bought, you know, I developed my whole beautiful pedal board. So it's all my sound <laughs> and my amp and all this shit. And now I've just been, I've just invested in a bunch of recording stuff. So I can, again, just like I've done with photography where I finish it all and then filmmaking where I learned all that bought all new lights so I could have cinema lights instead of strobes. Yeah. Now I'm going that much further with my music stuff. So as a parent then, because my kid is one, how are you instilling in your kids a passion for like knowledge and creating? Because it seems like you've been like out of the womb, you just started creating uh, you know, for your childhood on other people's terms, and now you've just continued it on your own terms. It's a beautiful thing. How do you carry, how do you make sure that torch carries forward? I'll tell you exactly. It is an old adage, but it is very real. Your children do not do what you say. They do what you do. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so if you want them to be self-possessed, creative folks... You fucking model it, and that's exactly what happens. Um, for instance, we just uh, painted our house. Mm-hmm. We painted it. My wife and I. She painted it. She painted it with a two-inch brush the entire house, and I did the carpentry as we went. Oh wow! Yeah. So I mean, you know, it, like you you model that, and then they pick up on that. Because um, anything you try and jam down their throats, boy, they'll throw it right back up in your face like <laughs> Regan in The Exorcist. Right. Um, but if you if you provide them tools, so you know, my wife was really diligent for a lot of their young years, like just making the effort after school, taking them to this really cool little art class thing that uh, another friend mom ran. When she was inspired, and so like the kids have have total second nature, like oh yeah, I just pick this up and start making stuff, and then their own individual strengths evince themselves. For instance, our our smallest daughter, who's now sixteen, oh, uh, when she was I guess around ten or twelve, she came home and she said, "I want to do this uh, rubber band thing." And all the kids at school were doing them where you get the rubber bands and you have a little loom and you make friendship bracelets. Yeah. And my wife's first thing was like, look, this is just plastic, fantastic crap. You're going to play with it for a week and then it just winds up at the bottom of the ocean. Are you sure this is what you want? And she's like, I am sure this is what I want. That's our daughter. She's like, I am sure. She's just so badass. And it was like, all right, Ilsa said, I'll get it for you, but you have to teach yourself how to do it. So she went on YouTube. She figured out how to do it. Next thing she comes to us, she says, I need 10,000 rubber bands. <laughs> <laughs> and she made this fucking four-foot dragon. Oh, wow. Um, and what it what it, it, what it opened up to her, and we recognize this by just letting her do her thing, was that 
she's got a really great mind for patterns. So flash forward and she goes to her first year of high school and we go to opening night, you know, back to school night and yeah. the teacher in her algebra class says, can I talk to you in the hallway? And we think, oh shit. And we go out in the hall with him and he says, look, she's way too smart for this. I need you to enroll her in community college geometry at the same time. She needs it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which we did and it was great. So, so that's the thing. It's like you, you, you give you you lay the tools out in front of your kids. Yeah. You model the use of those tools all the time, and then they will gravitate to the ones that are right for them. That's so cool. I love listening to you talk about being a dad. It's I, at forty eight years old. I did not think I was going to get this opportunity, and now that it is here, it is the single most thing I am proud of. I love oh, being a dad. Exactly. Is, yeah. It's so rad. And you have a little girl or a little boy? Little boy. Yeah, that's something I don't know about, but I can imagine <laughs> just mind-blowing. And and here's the, here's the other real secret to parenting. To my mom's credit, I think this is really the gift she gave to me. When you treat your children like human beings, mm -hmm. they grow up to be human beings. Right. And what, and you know what more do you want from them? Because it turns out these 18 years just go by so fast. Yeah, And you can only hope that you have instilled enough strength and self-preservation and self-derivation of form and intention and ethics that they can go off and make these decisions on their own because they're going to, you, you know? Yeah. I, I When I first became a dad, I was doing a parenting podcast where I was interviewing all my friends who had done it and I felt did it really well. And one of my friends said something that I found incredibly powerful where she was talking about introducing their kids to Star Wars and they were watching the prequels and her daughter was like, I love Jar Jar Binks. And they were like, no, 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 no. Jar Jar is terrible. And she's like, nope, I love him. And my friend <laughs> realized that's right. I don't want to teach my child to be obedient. I want to teach my child to reason. And she explained, like, I like him, you know, not in these exact words, but kind of explain. I like him because he's the underdog and he's funny right. and explain why she liked him. And that makes sense because later in life, if someone's like, hey, do drugs, she can be like, I don't want to do drugs because and she can reason her way out instead of just being blindly obedient to things. And I think that's a great gift that art and disagreeing about art can bring us as parents. Right. You know, and, and to that end, like that, that whole notion of, cause that's obviously you know, from, from the background of a child actor, uh, you know, so many of, it, of my peers of that time wound up going down, you know, rotten alleyways. Yeah. Um, now I didn't because one, Again, I didn't need to. I did, you know, so much of that is rebellion, and I didn't need to rebel in that way. Well, it and sounds like two, you got that high from creating, you know? Yeah, well, that, oh, this is the, the single most important lesson I got from being an actor as a kid was that I was considered a professional at what I did. Yeah. Like, there were lines to learn. As you know, there's a skateboard to ride always and roller skates and you know, I was a kid, I did shit. But there were lines to learn and that you had to get up early in the morning and you go be on the set and you you know, you learn your 
where to hit your marks and all this stuff and, and you don't look in the camera like all that stuff was just second nature to me people always marveled but i realized what it was, it was like i was being asked to be a professional so i was being professional and that was a just such a fabulous lesson as a kid right to be professional oh yeah and and remember i also was never a celebrity right whereas my sister really became a celebrity and that was its own ball of wax you don't but you don't was, consider yourself ever actor. really oh okay no no like like the height of my celebrity was was going to uh, you know a uh yeah what do you call it a um go-kart place you know <laughs> well, well here here's a counter story to that so i i've been a stand-up comedian for the last 20 years and one of the things i still like to do is say incredibly braggadocious things even though i know that it's not actually bragging like if someone wants to talk to me and like forgets what they're gonna say i'll say like listen I know what it must be like to be starstruck since I was in a five hour energy drink commercial and, you know, just <laughs> nonsense like that. And so I was sitting at work on the day that you um, texted and someone asked me a question and I, you know, put my hand up. I said, would you please excuse, excuse me? I'm, I'm texting my best friend, Mino Palouse right now. And the person <laughs> said, oh my God, are you serious, Mino? And I was like, yeah, and she's a woman who's our age too. And she's like, I wrote him a fan letter in 1982, and he wrote, he sent me back an eight by ten, and like she lit up. So, like, when I left to come talk to you today, I was like, I'm gonna go talk to your boyfriend from when you were ten years old. And she was like, Oh, <laughs> you know, that's so funny. Yeah. Well, you would send send her my love, obviously. Yes, I think send, you were a celebrity, but you just maybe didn't know you were a celebrity. Yeah, well, and and maybe that's it, right? Like, so right, like if if people were making me out to be something in their minds because I existed outside of me in their worlds that's great yeah but like i was certainly not reaping the benefits of that yeah you know when when my sister became a celebrity we reap the benefits of that for instance they would want her to come do uh, a thing in australia and mom would say great you're bringing the whole family and we'd all get plane tickets and we get to go down there that kind of thing so that that was celebrity right yeah right um, Soleil from a very young age got to go to clubs and all this stuff. And, you know, while I went out and ran around at night too, it was different. You know, I, I didn't have like special entrance mm -hmm. that I was relying on. I was yeah. just a boy trying to get laid. Um, <laughs> and you still had three back to back to back television series that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and, yeah. And again, like the, the cool thing about that was, again, I was I was a working actor. Yeah, and, and remember, the, the other side of it too was I had this fabulous little school that I grew up at, and I just went and I um, had a lovely shoot of the people who started that school of them with their kids and grandkids, and that you know that so like that connection is still rich and wonderful, right. and having that ballast, got a little place to go back to. You know, we didn't grow, we, we didn't have any money growing up. Like as we began to make money. I think we essentially all lived off that money, but mm. we just grew up in little apartments in Los Feliz. Right. Um, oh, okay. I lived in Los Feliz when I was out there. Right. So, you know, I mean, like my, my, the, my, the extent of my, of the fruits of my celebrityhood was that as a little kid, I bought myself a skateboard. I bought myself a guitar. I bought myself a cool BMX bike. Yeah. But 
know, that was that. Yeah. Um, I went to summer camp in the summer. Um, when I was out there, I, my friends lived in Pasadena and they had a daughter that was in a Waldorf school and they were doing Shakespeare. So my wife and I went and watched too. And like all the parents there were celebrities and, you know, my friends, you know, one's the mom's an editor and the dad works in the art department. And I was like, wow, this is kind of surreal. And they were like, yeah, we're, we're kind of the, the working class, uh, parents here, but yeah, you know, these are all the parents at the Waldorf school. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess when you're growing up and all, you know, the end, like I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, so everyone you know knows someone in their family who works in the auto industry. So I guess growing up in the greater Hollywood area, it's sort of the same thing. So yeah, and again, that's the thing too. Like having, I didn't have a bunch of celebrity friends. Mm-hmm. I, okay. Certainly, when I did, I did Bad News Bears when I was ten years old, and so I was hanging out. You know, my best friends were the kids on the show because there was a dozen of us and we're yeah. just a bunch of kids hanging out every day together and we loved it. Um, but Soleil had much more of that kind of thing where like she knew other quote unquote famous people and ran in circles with them and is still connected to them today. And again, I didn't have that. I had my little world of my little school that I would go back to when I wasn't working and yeah. that kind of thing. So, I mean, I had a, I had a really amazing childhood, mm-hmm. but it wasn't because of celebrity. It was because of just doing neat things that were kind of unique for kids to do. I so I didn't see them as unique. They were just the cool things that I did, right? Yeah. I love I love Mark uh Mark Marin's podcast because he always gets people talking about <laughs> their childhood and in, and instantly somehow it gets like bores down to, you know, what is the hurt of their childhood that in, has informed the rest of their life. I, I, by the way, I've been a guest on WTF and Mark and I are, are friends and I was consciously trying to not marin you. <laughs> so. No, no. So I, so I love that. Right. So, and, and so I, I'm always thinking about like, all right, like what, when, when one day I finally get to be on his podcast, like, you know, cause I, I love to dish. I love to, you know, I know I, again, as a parent, as a, as a, as a responsible parent, I could see how irresponsible my mom was. Um, how checked out my dad was, how really checked out my sister's dad was. But I also know that like part of your job as a parent is to grow out of the pains of your childhood, Mm -hmm. you know, take from them what you need to take from them so that you can not perpetuate them. Right. Do you want me to put you in touch with Mark? Oh, I love that. Okay, yeah. I'll uh, when we get done, I'll send a group text, and uh, oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> when I was on WTF beforehand, he was like, "All right, what what don't you want to talk about?" And it was right after I gotten divorced, and he knew my ex wife, and I was like, "I I really don't want to talk about my divorce. It's too fresh." And he goes, "All right." So right out of the gate, the first question, he's like, what's going on with this divorce? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh. <laughs> and then later I, I told him, yeah, I, I brought that up. And I was like, no, I, I get it. I think you saw that I was hurting and you were trying to back me into a corner to write my way out of it because I know that's how you write. And he was like, nah, man, I was probably just being a dick. <laughs> so, <laughs> See, he always, he always plays that card. But no, he's playing the therapist card. He knows that like therapy is... Like if if you want the wound to heal, you got to get that that ulcerous scab off the top of it. Oh yeah, he you was. 
let the air get on it and you gotta let it get some fresh blood flowing through it and then it can heal he was the only person who really went out of his way to help me out when I was out there. Like before I moved there, he was getting me on the best shows at UCB. And then, you know, one time when I was just out there doing shows, he put me on WTF and he opened so many doors. We were developing a cartoon and he was, and I was like, Hey, can I attach you to this? He's like, absolutely, man. If, if it's going to help you open more doors, of course. And, you know, we got to have so many, I mean, he's such, he's more like his character on glow than I think people, you know, would assume where he really does have a huge heart. Um, right. He's a mensch. Yeah, he really is. All right. I will wrap it up because I know that you have tons to do, but I do Um, want to ask. So you know what I'm working on today? I, so I get, I'm working on, um, a commercial for Warnock and Ossoff mm-hmm. with uh, with Georgia Vets. So that's a really nice piece that I'm Ooh. putting together. Um, I'm working on a series of commercials that I shot with COVID nurses talking oh, about, wow. look, this is real. This is deadly. I, uh, you know, I have to answer to these people's families. I have to say goodbye to them for them. I And, like, we got to stop the surge. So making these powerful pieces... God, and yeah. um, oh. so that—that's what it's all like on the plate this week. Some powerful stuff. Like I'm, yeah. I, I feel proud to be involved with the good fight. You absolutely are. L- let me ask you about character actors real quick, because there's yeah. one thing that I would kick myself for not asking you about. My all-time favorite actor—I know this is going to seem weird—is Tracy Walter. Like, as soon as I saw ah, Repo Man, yes. I was like, oh, my God, the guy from Best of the West. Like, I, and then Miller, his character in Repo Man, I like to imagine that's who he is. And everything I've ever written, for the most part, has a role for Tracy Walter. In fact, when we were pitching our cartoon to Cartoon Network, the exec there was like, oh, my mom's next door neighbor is Tracy Walter. This is great. So can you tell me anything about him? So can, can I just, like, like... Yeah, that's so great that you bring him up because he was so wonderful. So, right, so picture, like, I'm this little kid who's got this great relationship with make-believe, i.e., like, I don't have any acting chops or anything, but I learn my lines, and then I go and I participate in this this thing where everyone's got these lines that are not real, but you make them real and you make them, you know, you make this, this soulful connection with people you look at them in the eyes and all this shit and yeah. that's acting right yep um and and you don't and like you totally forget about everything else you forget about who you are you become this other thing um so when all of a sudden i go to do best of the west like of course we're all just cowboys now no problem <laughs> yeah and of course this is the the drunk in the bar and of course this is the evil barkeep and of course this guy slim pickens is fucking slim pickens i mean <laughs> yeah so so tracy walters was incredible because he just he, he everyone on that show was just so good at at making believe of those characters and bringing oh them to life the cast and, of and that so, show all the character actors you got to work with oh, oh my amazing. god remember yeah. the writers were the writers from taxi taxi was shooting yeah. right next door so like we would go watch them rehearse oh and and then and then like I would take a few minutes because remember this is the weird thing about being a kid actor is that 
there's, you know, for a lot of actors, there's hurry up and wait. Mm -hmm. For a kid actor, there's very little in the way of hurry up and wait because if there's any time that you're not in front of the camera, you have to go back to school because you have yep. to somehow get three yeah, hours of schooling yeah. a day. Yep. In, in, and, and I love this, in at least 20 minute, 20 minute chunks. <laughs> yeah, build up some real momentum there. <laughs> right, so, so like when, here's a visual for you. We're doing the Spanish Civil War in Voyagers and you know, we're in the back lot of Universal and we're in that whole cool cowboy town where the, where the flood comes down. Yeah. And I'm sitting on my little, I, they had a special camp chair for me that I could put a piece of wood across my, my lap. So that was that. So that would save like the 10 minutes of walking back to my trailer to go back right. to school. <laughs> yep. And, um, so, so while I'm doing best of the West, and, you know, Mork and Mindy's down the way, Bosom Buddies. I, I, that was like really being in the thick of it with all these great people. But in so many ways, like the hangout shoot the shit part, I don't get to be a part of. Right. So the make-believe, like being on set pretending doing these scenes is very much my reality with these people. Oh, yeah. So, so you know, so that great, so yeah, the notion of a character actor, like, that was, I mean, he's embodying that character. He was, he was that character for me. He was all that stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, supreme big hearted guy and, and brought that, all of that to that being that drunk. I, I love that. Yeah, it's yeah. funny that you mentioned that episode because I had gone on the backlot tour so many times that when I realized that's where that episode was shooting, I was like, well, going to wait for the flood. And then it never came. Right. <laughs> and I was like, so here's, oh. here's a wonderful piece, right? <laughs> Take a look at my website, and there's the shot of Lady Gaga yeah. being enveloped by the wave. Right. Oh, is that there? So that's there at that place, and there's a rock right in the middle of it. And the rock is there because as the water comes down, the water hits the rock and shoots up and makes it more exaggerated. Yeah. And it turns out there's like a hook on that rock so that you can get hooked onto it. So yeah. she's in that incredible gown, but she's got underneath, there's a, you know, a harness, and she's hooked to the rock. We're shooting the music video. I'm there doing stills. That thing's the water's coming down. I got one frame to make at one perfect moment. Yeah. Kaboom! I nailed it. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that was that was amazing. So the, the one thing we didn't talk about, which is the most important part of Voyagers, is the dude I made it with. John Eric Hexum was. He was just one of the great fucking human beings who got to walk the earth for a second. Me being a, a Star Wars guy, I was five and 77. So getting to have him in my home every week was like having Han Solo there. And, exactly. Oh, so much charisma. Yeah, and, and, and come on, and, like, I, get to have, I get to have that young Han Solo as one of my best buddies. Yeah. Because remember, when I start that, I'm 12... So I'm 12, 13 that whole time that we shot that. And also, like, I, I'm a kid who's brought up by my mom. I'm the older brother. So all of a sudden, like, I had this older brother who was so cool. Yeah. For instance, when when we did the auditions, right, mm -hmm. we it, it, it did the giant cattle calls, and then it all got round down to two adults and two kids. And so we went in to read for the network, and we each both read with the other people first. Right, And so by now we really know the scene that we're doing the whole thing. And so like it goes really well 
for each of us with it. But then the other two people go in and we start rehearsing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, we got this. Like we just knew. Yeah. And we went in and we did it in the room. And like, there was just so much chemistry, so much magic. We could see it all in their faces. We knew we had it in the bag. And then it was great because John Eric goes to my says to my mom when we because we have to meet at Universal to do the whole um, wardrobe testing thing. And he says, listen, can Mino stay afterward with me? I want to hang out with him so we get to know each other and I'll bring him home. Like, I'm a kid. I've grown up at Universal Studios and going on the back lot, going on the tour, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Here, John, Eric, and I and a football are just walking the back lot. Like, fuck it. We're the kings <laughs> of Universal back lot. We got it all to ourselves. And... You know, what was the coolest thing when you were a little boy was to be able to throw a good spiral, right? Right? John Eric would be like, all right, here we are on New York Street. Go down. No, no, further, (laughs) further, further. And he could throw the ball so far. I mean, it was just, he was like hanging out with your own personal superhero who was just the coolest guy. And then we get on the first day of the shoot and we're doing our first scene where we find baby Moses in the bull rushes. Mm. And we shoot the, we shoot the, uh, the master of it it's really this amazing beautiful morning out of indian dunes got the whole thing going on we got that great chemistry going and then we start to shoot the coverage of it and he, he says mino come over here for a second i say yeah what is it john he says how come you're on the other side of the camera he said johnny <laughs> this is your close-up <laughs> he had no knowledge of any of this shit yeah you were the seasoned vet at that point oh, yeah completely. yeah oh but i could totally appreciate it because like that's how it was when I had started when I was yeah. seven years old. <laughs> oh, wow. I just think about, like, trying to put myself in James Perriott's shoes. Like, he's 32 years old. He wrote on a couple genre shows. Now he's running a show. It, it seemed like such a healthy workplace. And knowing that you guys got along like brothers, like, it explains why in the show, because my partner and I haven't watched it since it first aired. Like we're watching it each week as we do the podcast. Like it's no surprise that the chemistry between your characters developed so quickly because it was there in real life. Yeah. Well, and and what was really cool was that when you do a series, you're with the crew, right? Like the crew stays the same. The Mm -hmm. directors come and go, but the crew stays the same. And, and generally, like, the, the cast would stay the same. But the right. only cast that stayed the same was John Eric and I. Yes. So each week, we have this whole new coterie of people who come in to be part of our family. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking they all loved it because we always made it so, so embracing. You know, they got to play these great characters. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we'd have these fun things. With, and then... And, then they're gone. And that's the thing, too. They weren't even usually working all week with us, right? Because each show had separate times. Yeah, zones. you have your A story, your B story, and your C story. But, and, yeah. but having bumped into some of those actors over the years, they were always very solicitous of their memories of how nice it was to have worked with us. <laughs> well, because we did have a great time. The, the one, though, that was the funniest was the woman who played Caesar's wife. Okay. Right? Yes. And and I, I bump into her somewhere and I just walk up to her and I say, I remember you from the Colosseum in Rome. And she like turned white. And I was like, No, 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 remember you were on Voyagers and, <laughs> and she says, Oh, you see I've I've spent quite a bit of time in Rome and they're 
there were some young men at the Coliseum. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Uh, So I'm going to drop this interview in episode seven with John Anderson playing Abe Lincoln. Talk about another tremendous character actor. What are your memories of John Anderson? So my, my experience of John Anderson playing Lincoln was Lincoln. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, who right? he played like, a I, lot. I come, yeah, <laughs> I, I come onto the set. He's being Lincoln. I'm being the kid who's trying to help Lincoln. Yeah, like this is this is the majority of our of our time spent together. And it was great. He was very much Lincoln. Like, yeah, you're doing this. You're just perfect for this, pal. Because <laughs> also by then, you know, like anyone who's coming on the show to be a historic figure, like my job is to believe that you're this historic figure and your job is to make me believe this. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Mino, I, Ginger, who runs the fan website and the Facebook group, really wanted to make sure that I thanked you on behalf of all the fans. And, you know, it's neat, too, because, like, she, if my memory is right, was born about the time that the show first aired. So she discovered it on cable afterwards. And... You, you know, me, I, like I said, you and I are the same age. My mom had a little pill compact that my brother and our the neighborhood kids would play Voyagers by pretending that this little pill thing was the Omni. And, you know, we would make believe in the front yard and stuff. And, That's you know, I, I know you're very humble and you don't look at yourself as a celebrity, but thank you for being part of something that has touched so many people and it's a show that I can't wait until my son gets older because, you know, talk about storytelling earlier, that writing staff created stories that still in 2020 move along at a really good pace and the show holds up and I can't wait to introduce my son to those. Our show was, was, was the victim of what's known as the second TV in the household slump, meaning our time slot was up against 60 minutes, the number one yeah. show in the country. Our TV show was getting all this great love from people, but it wasn't showing up in the ratings, right? You would always look from the bottom up in the Nielsen listings yeah. each week to see where we landed. So we kind of knew that there was a noose around our neck. It was a very much a damocles sword each week that here comes these terrible ratings again. But we knew we were making this great show. And we were getting the kudos for doing so, but it was too expensive to run with those ratings. So, yeah. you know, we only did the two seasons, which back then that's 13 episodes a season. So it was two yeah. years. Yep. And then a little show took our time slot that had enough total magical pizzazz in an era where there was enough realization that there was more than one television in the house. <laughs> and it was simple enough that it could be done cheap enough and it could just rely on the pure pleasure of the magic of the characters. Mm-hmm. Punky Brewster. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I, I am a failed musician turned comedian. In the 90s, I had a punk band and I actually wrote a song called Punky Brewster. And when we recorded an EP, I sent it to your sister and she called my parents answering machine and just said that she enjoyed it. And I still kick myself that I was not home to get the phone call. And <laughs> and it would have been too weird to call back and be like, hey, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> you know? so, man, I 
This is uh, a <laughs> decades worth of a dream come true. I am so glad that you are as cool as you are, that you still create and you have such an amazing eye. And I love what you do with lighting and composition in your photography. And I, I just getting to talk to you about parenting too. Oh my God. This has been hugely rewarding for me, man. Our oldest daughter comes home from Berlin on Friday where yeah. she's been going to college. Oh, wow. I mean, these are, this, this is what happens when you're a parent. Like you get to see the blossoming of these human beings and it's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, we took our, we took our 16 year old to Big Sur a few weeks ago for her birthday. What 16 year old kid celebrates it only with her parents because we're right. just, you know, away from the rest of the world. <laughs> And was totally pleased with her, like had a great time, loved it, and was not unhappy at all about having a sweet 16 that was as diminished as COVID has made so much. Right, yeah. So we, you know, the, the fact that we have a good connection with our kids speaks volumes to the fact that we, we must have done something right. Absolutely. My biggest goal is to love unconditionally and inspire by example. That's it. Awesome. Mino, thank you so, so much, much for your pal. time. Thank you for keeping uh, the, the Voyagers alive in everybody's minds. That's that's really important. Yeah, it started as, uh, I have a residency at this theater, and my podcast partner works at the theater. He made a reference to the show, and I think was surprised that I knew what he was talking about. And I was like, oh, I, I want to rewatch that. So I bought the series, and then I just kind of bounced it off of him like hey man i know we don't know each other but do you want to do a podcast about this and then when we launched the first episode i was like i wonder if there's a facebook group and like they've welcomed us <laughs> into their community and it, it's really making me feel like secondhand we're part of something special and uh that's right yeah uh, are you still a uh, an enthusiast of history i am my plan a was to be a teacher and then i fell into radio and television and then into comedy and uh teaching in literature i i think i would have gone the same route as you i i love reading and i, I never answered your question about teaching i i wound up teaching because I came out of school with a literature degree, went off, started just living my life, and then all of a sudden ran out of money. Right. So found out I could go substitute teach with my degree and no other credentials. Yeah. It seemed like a decent way to make a buck. Oh, yeah. But yeah. also, I, I had this feeling like, I've always had this feeling like destiny pushes me in the right direction. So I went with it. It was a weird few years, but it was at the end of those few years of like teaching and it was incredible. I, you know, I really had this rich experience because as a substitute, I'd been kept at Hollywood high yeah. on a long-term basis as the history teacher, as the politics teacher, sending kids off to college, like really getting the fundamental experience now of being a teacher. But I was like, I've got to go be an artist. So I yeah. pulled away and they said, you know, we still don't have anyone to fill your position. We still need you. I didn't have anyone to need me in the world. So I said, all right, I'll show back up. I show back up that morning and it was a dismal morning. One of those, one of those few dismal mornings in LA. Yeah. And I get there and they said, we're so happy to have you back, but you're not the history teacher anymore. Now you're the ballet teacher. Oh. And I thought, what the fuck is this? And so literally I asked the universe, why, why am I here at Hollywood high school 
on this gray morning of this gray day and this gray year of my life, please tell me why I am here right now. And I turned to walk out and a new art teacher walked in and I said, oh, that's why I'm here. And that was 21 years ago. Oh. And, you know, it's been an amazing life together. And oh. raised two great lives together. And that's, you know, Ilsa is just the great fundament, my, my great companion in all the further crimes of life. Dude, you are so inspiring. I feel like I just got done reading a book on Buddhism. Like I just, my soul <laughs> feels warm and just enriched right now. <laughs> like, oh. I'm so, yeah, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm inarticulate. I'm that overcome with joy. Bravo. Thank you so much, Mino. All right, Bob. Well, that was the interview, which you already said at the beginning. You have not heard yet. Yep. So through the wonders of editing, this is after Ooh. the interview. Uh, I'm excited. We've had people from the Facebook group reach out and ask to be guests on the show. And, you know, after having Ginger on, I... I'm excited to have more people who know this show so much better than you and I know this show help us out with it. I I agree. And it's just meeting, you know, our kin, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad that we're doing this, man. Me too. Me too. I I feel like we're, not only discovering a show, but I feel like we're also discovering a friendship between the two of us. I completely agree. If people can hear the stuff that you cut out, they'd be like, Oh, there's the friendship we're hearing. All right. <laughs> All right. So I would say we're definitely in 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 the Palouse pile and not the Bonnie Ducci pile as far as where we're on during this project. We're at during this project. I also had you on no longer a recent episode of the Truthcast, my main yes. podcast. And that episode is um, very not safe for work, but mm-hmm. super, super funny. I loved the way that you were playing your character on that show. And, oh, um, that's great. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if you was... listened to it or not, but um, I had so much fun getting to improvise with you within my comfort zone. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a really good episode. So oh, if you yeah. like the chemistry that Bob and I have, I recommend checking out the uh, episode of the Truthcast that Bob is on. And um, I completely agree. Yeah. Do not let children listen to that one. So, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. no. No, no, no. Yep. Take your children, put them in a, a, a different house, um, <laughs> <laughs> play Voyagers for them. Going back into another house, listen to our podcast, then go pick up your children. I don't have children, but if I did, that's what I would do. How do you think I feel having a child knowing that one day he's going to discover all the podcasts I do and I'm batting about 50-50 or family friendly? That's what I'm saying. You keep a good balance. So I think think that's a good thing. You know, you may just make sure he doesn't listen to too many of one in the same at the same time. Just mix it up a little bit you know so you can see bad dad and good dad yeah but the ones that are not family friendly are not family friendly no yeah yeah nope (laughs) (laughs) all right bob well until next episode um may your uh may your light stay green (laughs) (laughs) you had it you were so close you almost finished that sentence (laughs) (laughs) may your omni stay green Oh, may your omnis, I like it. May your omnis, ladies and gentlemen, may your omnis stay green. You know what they have been posting on the Facebook group that I really want now? What? Uh, people are doing 3D printed omnis. Oh, yeah. Okay. We should call Tommy and, and see if he can make us one. 
for two. Ooh, that will be his payment for being on the on the podcast. Totally worth it. Since we have let you be graced by our presence. Yes, yes, because <laughs> you wouldn't have the opportunity otherwise. <laughs> you may make us a gift. Oh That's boy, so funny. <laughs> All right, Bob. I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>